Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. Hey, how you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing good. How are you? I am super fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, I guess. So what's news? This is going to be our first recording when we can actually be like, how you been this week? And it will actually be honest. Yeah. This is part of our new initiative to actually start recording on a regular basis. Yes. Being a little bit more diligent to our weekly timeline that we've been trying to get these things out on and the best part is in the last episode that we that i just finished uh, the post on we recorded that before the new year's and you said oh way to date the episode and then i think i made a joke about uh, <laughs> don't worry they won't hear it for a month and that's pretty much true i know i'm like right on schedule yes yeah this is perfect also these ones i mean we can record the heck out of them and then just like slowly let them trickle out nobody needs to know don't limit our listeners <laughs> plus this is their uh their subscription they can actually listen to it whenever they choose this is true this is true we're not gonna we're not trying to put any time constraints or any any pressure on you guys we want you to learn at your own pace and uh, listen at your own pace and give feedback constantly exactly and i just i also just don't want them to listen to a whole bunch of them and go uh, where's the next episode what happened to these guys did they stop oh we haven't stopped we'll never stop can't stop the rock can't stop won't stop podcast for life or you know until of course we stop which is <laughs> not now yeah not not this episode well you have yourself a great week <laughs> what uh well, now, see, now we have no banter. Now we've got nothing to actually talk about. Last time we had, you know, a, a month to generate to generate news. It's true. Huh. I told you I'm having another kid, right? You're having another kid? I'm having another kid. You didn't tell me that. I didn't? No. Oh, having another kid. Ah, like on purpose? ish yes or someone was all like let's go on a disney cruise and then you were like i want to do the adults only events and then carrie was like all right fine was that pretty much what happened is that exactly what happened that's exactly what happened isn't it no no we just had our uh 20 week ultrasound oh congratulations yep thanks wow you tell me nothing <laughs> Had we seriously podcast, like, and then I ask you every time, so what you been up to? And then you're just like, eh, nothing. Getting ready for the baby. Hmm. Do you know the sex yet? Nope. Are you guys going to try and find out? No. Keep it a secret? Keep it a surprise. Are the girls excited? In as far as your daughters? Yes, they're excited. That's pretty awesome. Huh, big news. Huge news. You heard it here first, boys. We all did, which fortunately I'm going to take like another month to edit this one. So <laughs> I'll be the first to know. All right. That's cool. That works for me. 
I don't have any news anywhere near as exciting as that. So what can you tell me about hardening? So <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what the heck hardening is. Apparently our topic for this week is hardening. Yeah. Uh, when vendors come out with products and software, mm-hmm. when Microsoft comes out with its operating system, the purpose of the operating system and the purpose of, you know, the home router you get or whatever, right, is just for it to work. So it's meant to be versatile, whatever your needs are, it should be accommodating for that. Now, that doesn't have the best implications when you're talking about security, because if bad guys can take advantage of it and it just works for them too, that's not what we want. So the purpose of hardening is actually to reduce the attack surface of your computer and your devices so that it's not running things that people can find vulnerabilities on and exploit. The whole concept of vulnerabilities, remember, is that we don't always know what all of the vulnerabilities are when a piece of software is made, right? A vulnerability is just a bug in the software. And people will discover those over time and they'll start off by discovering a little flaw with it and then they'll pick away at that flaw and they'll discover this huge gaping hole under it and then they'll use that gaping hole to exploit your system right so the whole point is if you trim down your system to only what you need to to use it for and you don't have the extra services running then you're in a much better position so in this sense hardening is something that is done by sysadmins or the end users as opposed to when like as opposed to like windows themselves making yes. their system okay so okay. yeah so so microsoft will have all of these settings that are possible to configure to help you reduce the attack surface but by default you know windows comes with a bunch of services turned on And in your customized environment, you might need some extra services that are turned off by default to be turned on, right? But you by no means typically need all of the services turned on. And even Windows, like it'll come with a firewall, but it won't be enabled by default, right? It'll say, uh, what kind of network are you connected to? And is it an untrusted network? Do I need to protect the computer from your peers, are you in a public network? Are you in an inter- internet cafe? And realistically, that really is the best case scenario for a product like Windows is to support as many people as they can with as little problem as they can. So that means that they end up having to leave a lot of stuff open because if you've got end user who just walks up to it and plugs in a device and wants it to work, then you need all of these services to be running and to be available, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Windows caters to both home users and small businesses and huge enterprises, right? And the ability for you to configure the settings. Right. And so it leaves the flexibility to be able to work in all of those scenarios. And, you know, flexibility is really needed to get that user adoption in the first place. But once people are there and they're used to the it just works thing, 
then we start discovering these security flaws with it and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't have it wide open and start scaling it back a bit. That seems to be the cycle that people just throw features out there and then get around to eventually securing the features, which is probably not the best practice, but hey, it's the world we live in. Right. So hardening is really just a way of reducing the uh, attack surface and implementing the best practices so that you won't be a victim as much as you can avoid it. There's different scopes for hardening, right? It could be like your home network. Maybe you want to have like a Wi-Fi network, but you don't want it to be open to everybody. So there's steps you can do to harden your network or what about your your laptop that you carry with you and you're going to bring it into like a Starbucks to use their Wi-Fi, their open Wi-Fi, right? But then that puts your computer at risk. So maybe you want to just protect your computer or maybe it's your website and you have a website out there that other people are coming to and you want to make that hardened so that it's not vulnerable to attacks. Or maybe you're part of a small business or an enterprise and you need to consider a more holistic, widespread security. So it's it's important to understand kind of the, the scope of what you're trying to protect, and then you can start doing the protection things. So for the sake of this podcast, what scope did you want to look at or where did you want to start? I just want to touch on the general concepts of hardening and not going into too much depth on anything in particular but the general facets of hardening, I suppose, and then maybe describe how it would work against multiple of those areas. So one thing that comes about when I think about like your home network, maybe is your router that comes with it, right? So routers often come with default passwords. Say you buy like a Linksys or an Asus router or something like that you plug it into your home network then there's typically a port that you need to go to and an ip address that you need to go to to set it up through a web gui and that web gui has a default password like i think it's a bin and bin on most of them right and even like high end cisco gear comes with like cisco cisco as the username and password so first step is change that default password change it to something unique for yourself that you can remember I know, or I remember a lot of the time on the way older ones, we didn't even have default passwords. There was a lot that just had admin as the default login. It was either the password or the username that was blank. And I, I think that it was the password that was blank. So you would simply put in admin as the username and then leave the password blank and hit enter. And you would then be able to start setting it up. And as they've progressed, they've gotten a lot in much the same way as everything else has um, that we've been talking about over the last couple of episodes. It started out really, really simple and then has been becoming more and more advanced as need has basically arisen that we now have to take into consideration that people are going to leave whatever defaults on there. So they've started making it more complex just from the get-go. Yes, and it's been a very slow march towards that. I mean, but uh, definitely, whatever choices you have, make sure you're not using the default password. If there is one, change it. If there isn't one, all the better. But there might not just be one default password, 
right? Like the Unix systems typically come with a whole bunch of different ones. Like there's the root account, which is that most powerful one. And then there's maybe a guest account and, uh, you know, some other service running on there that might have a default username and password. So it's important to look through and change those for any active accounts that you have. Sorry, quick digression here. So I'm going to have to hack into the ISIS server. Uh, let's try <laughs> guest. <laughs> oh, this is just baby time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just started watching Archer. Yeah. Archer, Archer had it right. Yeah. You don't want to, <laughs> you want to, you want to have a, something a little bit more stronger than that. Um, and then what we'd also talked about before with the operating system ones is, you don't want to live and do everything under the context of the most powerful account. You know, you want to have a separate, less privileged account for your day-to-day everything and then log in with that more powerful account when you need to. Right? And this is mostly around the computers, but um, certainly some network devices allow you to have uh, different profiles. You can, Especially in the enterprise class systems, you can have... Uh, a regular user to account to log into a, a switch or a firewall to view a configuration. And then when it comes time to actually make a change, you need to go up that level of privilege, type in enable and get to that, uh, that super user mode so that you can make the change that you want to make. The same thing goes for web servers. Oftentimes you can have the exact same cause you're, you're logging into it remotely. You're using someone else's computer and you're using someone else's system to access it. If you are a web developer or if you're a webmaster, then at that point, what you might want to consider doing is creating a super user account. And then you can actually create sub accounts so that you can allow lesser access to anyone else who may need to log in and access the files. They would simply have read or write only as a possibility and then limit the, the 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 folders the directories that they can access yeah like in our scenario for our website we are a consumer of a website where there's multiple other people being consumers of the website right not everybody has the root password um, not everybody has a privileged account all you need is a regular user account who has the ability to write to the directory where your web page is being served up from and then you can upload your web page there especially if you're giving something like telnet access i got to work on a server that some dude who's like actually a really good webmaster as opposed to me who's just make stuff up as i go along and he had it all set up so that you could telnet in you could use anything you would have to you know pseudo uh pseudo into your into your route when you really need to make those changes i probably broke his server <laughs> yeah i mean sounds kind of broken anyways where you have to telnet to something telnet is like a 40 or 50 year old protocol there's no reason to telnet anymore with secure shells available regardless well no it was ssh but whatever good well that would be along the lines of disabling unused services right services that you don't need to use that you don't have to have listening you don't want to have listening we talked about the finger service before that was the cause <laughs> for uh, vulnerability. Is that the one? I'm confused maybe now. But the, the Morris worm actually got through through some 
RPC or RSH service that might not have been needed. And if they had disabled that, then the worm would not have spread. So yeah, you you want to disable the services that aren't running because it just increases the attack surface, right? If you're not using Bluetooth, but your Windows 8 has it enabled, disable it. And then that closes off you to that attack from, you know, somebody potentially finding a vulnerability within the driver for Bluetooth that works on your laptop or whatnot. It's just, uh, it's good practice and it, and it keeps you safer. Another really good practice to do is if you can control it, make sure that the services that are running on your on your system are running under least privileged account, the less privileged account. So they're not running under the system ID in Windows. They're not running under root, right? They might need root privileges to be able to start up under a certain port, but things like Apache have developed ways so that it just requires the root privilege to reserve the port number that it needs for port 80, which is what web traffic goes over. And then it will actually run the web engine under a regular privileged account so that if there's any issues that arise, if somebody were to exploit that web server, then they don't have root privilege to your entire operating system. Same thing with Windows. You can actually set services to run under under lower privilege even the windows equivalent would be iis as the web server for it um, and you can set the account under which your instance of a web server runs to be less privileged and you can actually set it to be like a a windows account that's maybe shared amongst a bunch of systems if you're in a, an enterprise scenario and you have an active directory then you can actually set a task to run so that you can connect to a database server on another one under a Windows credential and it's all handled seamlessly and secure and it's least privileged and it's the way you want to go. It makes a lot of sense. There's so many different settings within Windows that you can play with if you really want to take the time to learn it. And this is why this is going to be a good episode. I'm really excited. Yeah, there, there are a lot of different settings that can be set. And what you want to be able to do is have a way of repeat those settings. It, so if you're a home machine, maybe it's not such a big deal, right? You take the time once, you go through the thousand of settings or whatnot, you follow some of the best practice guides, and you lock down your system. So it's not running things like we were talking about before with the landman hashes and the NTLM version ones that it's only running the more secure connection settings so that you don't have the ability for someone to crack your password as easily, right? And you don't have the exposure of those services that you don't need to run. You don't have services starting up that you don't need. If you don't have a printer at your house, disable the printing service, right? You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that for a lot of these things, but it's time consuming to go through all these settings. And there are people who have developed, you know, best practices for it. There's NSA guides. There's the um, Center for Information Security guys have come out with uh, templates for you to follow along. NIST have templates. There's And there's a whole bunch of people who have developed these good settings and good practices to follow. And it's just a matter of taking the time to implement it. But if you're going to do it for a small business or or an enterprise, something that you have multiple systems with a similar configuration that you need, 
it's really good practice to do it once and then repeat that across other systems. So you can have templates that you create that are able to be copied, or you can create like a gold image for your company and say, okay, this is at this point in time, here's a fully patched system set hardened to the configurations that I want to have it set to and any other server of this type of thing, any other web server is going to be like this or any print server is going to be uh, this different configuration. I'm going to make a special type of gold image for that or whatever, you know, a domain controller is going to be set up like this or uh, workstations are going to be set like this. I don't want them to have a whole bunch of extra services that aren't necessary. I'm going to lock it down and have it configured in this way. And then you create you create an image of that that when it comes time to install into a new machine, you install from that image. So creating this image, is this a built-in function within Windows of built-in functionality? Is there an option to, say, export your settings like in the way that you would maybe... I don't know, save your registry settings. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. You can actually create an image through like third-party imaging software, or you can create... Things like Ghost? Yeah, I don't want to get into any products. I don't want to sponsor any products, but yeah, something like that, right? Um, And then there's also these other things that are provided. Microsoft provides a bunch of different ways to to do this for the Microsoft world. The first and foremost is if you're in an enterprise or a business of any size, you really should have an Active Directory, right? And we talked about before very briefly, but the Active Directory has all these settings within Active Directory that you can enforce down onto machines that they can't override, right? So if they're a part of the domain then they are hardened to the degree of which the default computer setting is is configured for. Um, And then a user, you can also have settings applied to users through this where it it helps. And that's what separates, you know, some of these more elaborate operating systems from less ones. And then there's also the ability to say, you know, not only am I going to worry about computers that are part of the domain, Maybe I'll have machines that can't participate in the domain for whatever reason. Like if if it's got to run some old garbage software that hasn't been patched in forever because the company's out of business, but you know they do one thing really well that my enterprise has to keep running, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a hardened policy just for that computer, uh, for, for a standalone type of computer. And they have these abilities to do this through these templates that they have. And that's what I was saying is these governing bodies have created some templates for some systems that you might want to just apply. And because Microsoft has this tool, which allows you to apply these templates across multiple systems. And you'll see links to that in the show note. Is Active Directory available through for home end, home end users? Or is it exclusively to Microsoft server type setups? So it comes with server. It's an option within the Microsoft server platform where you can actually promote a server into a domain controller. And then once you have that, I mean, it has it's bound in with things like DNS. And then typically you'll have like DHCP attached to that as well. It's expensive. It's uh, something that you'd want to use for an enterprise. And there's different flavors of it as well. 
uh, of Active Directory. Like if you want a data center type thing where you need like crazy powerful machine to use this, then they've got a license for that. But yes, it's a server thing. It's it's more it's not really a home thing. I'm just wondering for any listeners who may be interested in trying to set one up. There's no standalone third party version of this that Microsoft offers for people to uh, either purchase individually or to download without actually going as far as getting a Windows Server. No, it it is part of Windows Server. It is a okay. feature of it. Just wondering. Um, if you weren't Microsoft based, I mean, this is actually based on Novell Netware technology. Novell, as far as I know, is still around. So they have a more rudimentary scheme of that where you can have like enterprise user management and computer management. But from what I recall, like 14, 15 years ago in class about this, uh, it was uh, much less versatile in what it could do. But for those home people and those small business people who can't afford uh, a server, then definitely go the the template route. And I mean, Windows is just one type of operating system. It's a very common type of operating system. That's why I keep mentioning it. But certainly for businesses that want to trim down costs, then they might want to use some sort of Linux variant. Um, or maybe you're a design shop and you only use Mac, right? And so you'd want to look into what you can do for securing those platforms. And, and s- sorry, you said that you were going to put links to the templates for uh, Windows users in the show notes? Yes. Okay. Just for what it's worth, those are accessible through in-security.org slash EP013. Go to win-security.org for all of your information security needs for this podcast. Uh, for Linux boxes, there's a, there's a whole initiative around having a hardened kernel. So the kernel in Windows is basically a static thing, right? What it, Microsoft delivers it to you, um, and it's got you know a bunch of stuff in there that you can control through these policies and services and whatnot that are running but really the guts of the kernel you can't do anything with it linux provides you a lot more control so does bsd uh, where you can actually configure which settings you want to have running in your kernel and you might want to have some things running in your kernel for it to be more efficient and faster or you might want to exclude things from your kernel so that you don't have that big of an attack surface available and so there's uh, there's hard there's different hardened kernels that are available. One that was brought about by the NSA is an initiative called SE Linux for secure Linux. It's kernel settings that are required to enable a different type of access control for your system, and also have certain auditing enabled so that. Uh, some of the features of a secure Linux can be enabled. So it logs uh, service requests and, and other things a lot better. Microsoft does have a, a hardening component that you can do on top of the kernel, which you have no control over. And that's something called EMET. And it sounds for enhanced uh, exploitation mitigation enhanced toolkit or something like that. Anyways, uh, I'll have a link for that in the show notes as well. And it it's extra controls to protect you against things like 
uh, buffer overflows and and things of that sort, other problems with uh, common pieces of tools and malware. Back, but back to the Linux world for a second. So there's the access controls. We'd talked about it beforehand where I said, like, you know, if you have 777 set on a file, that means that it's basically world readable, world writable. Remember that? These were the permissions, the CH mod. The, yeah, the file level permissions. Um, and what those are, those are discretionary access controls. And, and the first seven means that it has read, write, and execute available for the owner of the object. And the second set seven means it has read, write, and execute available for the people who are a member of that group. And that third seven, it means it has read, write, and execute permissions available for other users of that system, right? So that's basically everybody has ability to read, write, and access it as long as they can log into that, that area, right? Which is all sorts of wrong. But there's those three combinations of me as the owner of the file, my group of users who are in the same group as me, and everyone else is not very good controls, right? You can be very specific in, in the Mac OS or in uh, Windows or a bunch of other things about who specifically has access to a file without making a special group for them, right? You can call out the individual users and that's, and you can also define groups for people and, and tr- um, apply permissions to multiple groups in those other operating systems as well, right? And in Linux, you can do it, but you have to change the way this discretionary access control works to something called mandatory access control, which gives you these extra features that you can enable and say, okay, now I'm not just setting it for myself as an owner. I'm also setting it for Tim, Bob, Joe, whoever, right? And then you can say, okay, it doesn't make sense in an enterprise scale for me to permit these specific users access or no access to it. It makes more sense for me to assign roles to people. Okay. All of these people over here, these are my graphic designers. These people over here are my payroll people. These people over here are my uh, HR folks and they all need access to different systems through different accounts. And so through these mandatory access controls, these fine grained access controls, you can permit people based on their roles And that's really what you want to get into when you start scaling up to be able to have the ability to scale is you want to have this permissioning based around what role is somebody doing? Okay, I'm only going to give somebody access to the stuff they need based on their role. Right. As a dumbed down example, you've got going back to your designers and then your accountants. You have a bunch of graphic images that all the designers can access, but the designers also need access to their timesheets. The accountants don't need access to the graphics, but they need access to the timesheets as well because they'll need to know who worked for when. Right, and who's who's billed to what project, how many hours were assigned to the specific project, right? And, does- and then you as the manager want access to both the graphics and the timesheets as well. Right, but maybe you don't need write access to the files like the graphic designers would. 
no, you would just need potentially read access so you can just look at it and make sure that they are, in fact, doing something during the day. Right. And maybe HR needs access to the timesheets as well to see, okay, did somebody actually work for 40 hours this week or are they, you know, only logging 20 hours and then twiddling their thumbs the rest of the time? Right. So, yeah, so these are the different scenarios where we want to permit people to have access to information, but we don't want somebody in payroll to be able to, you know, overwrite somebody's work by accidentally trying to be helpful to a client. You know, we want to establish a workflow where they get delivered the final package for, for the individual to get and allow the people to do the stuff that they're paid to do, not overstep their bounds. Cool. Cool. Oh, another very important topic is patching. You want to have the ability to keep systems up to date. It's got to be part of your, your process of looking for patches that apply to stuff, especially, you know, I care about security patches. So especially around the security patches to make sure that a vulnerability that's discovered, it gets addressed in a timely manner. As soon as the as soon as the vendor comes out with a patch that, you know, there's a reasonable assurance that it's not going to break your systems, other people have installed it, and that you go ahead and install that as well. Is that a regular practice to give from release of a patch to have, you know, a couple of days to make sure that it's not going to break your system? Or would you regularly have a system standing alone that you can put it onto, then you can emulate work? Like, is that a thing to try and test it on your own? Yeah, so it depends on your business, right? If you've got a specialized business where you're using this really old crusty piece of software because it does this one thing, and it's the only piece of software that does this one thing that you need to live by, right? And they haven't um, they haven't come out with a patch for it, but it's running on Windows. So then you say, okay, this Windows patch is probably not something that Microsoft would have tested in their test scenario. And maybe it's worth me having an extra system to install this on to make sure that it doesn't break the software so that I'm not grinding production of my widget factory down to a halt. Right. So, and I mean, it, be, it's a risk that, call. It's a risk call for an organization to determine if that's something that they need or not. That's true. And that definitely makes a lot more sense because you're not necessarily going to have someone running the same sort of setup as that extreme case. Right. When is Microsoft patch Thursday? It's patch Thursday, right? Patch Tuesday. Tuesday. When is Microsoft's patch Tuesday? Is it every month? Every second Tuesday of the month. Every second week? Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Every second Tuesday of the month. So the this month it was the 10th. I don't know, as a grumpy home user who's been raised off of uh, too many versions of Windows, I still tend to give, maybe by force of habit, I still tend to give Windows service packs a uh, a three-week wait time. Three weeks? That seems entirely too long to me. Really? For all of the all of the people to install it and then have their systems crash? So they've gotten better. And it doesn't happen as frequently. And it, for a while, it they had a really good track record. But oh, I know. as of recently, they've had a couple of little mess ups where, you know, they've pooched systems based on 
patches in, in some scenarios. It definitely did happen, but the quality's improved over time for these people. Uh, for the when they've gotten into the habit of doing it, they've developed these test cases that are a lot better. I mean, it hasn't been as bad as some of the antivirus vendors where they've said that this critical operating system file is a virus and quarantine that and prevent your system from booting, <laughs> but, which which happens seems seems more frequently to me than a Microsoft patch pooching your system. The marketplace for bad guys putting out nefarious software is very closely tied to the delivery of patches. So Microsoft will come out with a patch, say the one that we were talking about before, where they actually closed off the the TIFF vulnerability that had existed beforehand, where your computer will see an image and then the image contains malicious code and then that malicious code will execute on your machine, thus compromising your machine, right? So the bad guys will receive the patch, they'll reverse engineer the patch, they'll figure out how the smarts does, what it does, what it's changed on the machine at the at the code level, and make their bad package actually attack that that problem. So the time to market between a patch and an exploit, depending on how bad the vulnerability that's getting patched is can be really short can be like a day but i mean it makes no sense for a home user a home user should just install the the patch as soon as it's available right and and reduce the their ability to get compromised through this sometimes patches will actually undo some of the hardening that you've implemented though so it's also really important to have some sort of process that goes and checks and validates that the hardening that was applied is still in place. So this can be accomplished through scripts. There's software that'll actually verify the configuration across a bunch of machines. Or if we're talking about something like an Active Directory where it's enforced every time the system reboots and every five hours or so uh, when the system's up, it'll get pushed back down to it uh what else so i mean hardening there's antivirus which is pretty much entry-level stuff for windows environments but might not be necessary on your linux or mac os platform uh firewalls which is just table stakes for doing anything on the internet whether there's a firewall that protects your network or your individual machine these are things that you need to think about and then, like I'd said before, there's, there's the baselines that you want to do, that you want to review, that the settings have stayed the same. Someone's not unhardened a box for convenience and that you're left there with uh, the hospital robe back part hanging out. <laughs> uh, and that's like applicable for a home, for a small business, for an enterprise. But if you're going to talk about some other things that can be done, like the systems that monitor the health of your various computing devices, your network devices and whatnot. You'll have things like intrusion detection, monitor the wire for attacks that are coming in. You'll want to centrally collect your logs and review those logs for people repeatedly trying to log into your system for people trying to break your accounts. Oh, and there's another critical thing for hardening, which I completely forgot to mention was the things we were talking about password complexity and having a password policy that applies against all of these systems. 
right? If you need to set these configurations on all of your Unix boxes, make sure that it works on all of your Unix boxes and make sure that you're not using the protocols that are obviously broken and should never be used anymore because they're really old and have known vulnerabilities to them. You can design the way systems interact like a DMZ type web system where you'll have your web application handle just the presentation of the actual website. And then you've got your app server with your complex business logic as a separate system. And that way the, the presentation box, if it gets attacked, can't get at the, the critical business components to it. And then they can't directly get the database connections that are on the app server that go back to a database server and they can't directly filter out your database thing because you're smart. You listen to the previous episodes. You've avoided things like SQL injection from working and you, you have a architecturally diverse defense in depth model where you've minimized that attack surface and you might even have firewalls in between each layer. Another interesting component that people have been experimenting with is sandboxing. So you, you'll have uh, an application running in a sandbox to help protect it if it gets compromised from affecting the other components on that computer, which is somewhat successful. It's getting better. I mean, Chrome does it natively where it has your uh, Flash extensions in there. You don't need to install Flash on your computer anymore if you're running Chrome and you run all of your Flash through Chrome. It'll get updated and patched when Chrome gets updated and patched, but it uh, it actually sandboxes the the Flash components so that hopefully it won't escape the sandbox and affect the rest of your computer. Have we spoken about sandboxes before? No, just now. Is that enough? Do you need me to go more in depth into that? No, no, there's, there's more than enough. So just really briefly, a sandbox is a self-contained world for a program to run in. It creates its own little sort of environment and then ideally tries not to let anything outside of it. Right. And it carefully monitors its inputs and its outputs uh, to that base system and hopefully filters out things that shouldn't be going there. Um, There's another concept that we haven't talked on either that is better than a sandbox, but it's more computer resource intensive and that's creating a virtual machine and doing those actions within a virtual machine. Malware developers are scared of virtual machines. So if you have something where you're questioning, you know, whether you want it affecting your computer, you can actually spin up a virtual machine, which is like a, a sub computer on your computer and it's got its own operating system. Do you think that we would have enough to talk about virtual machines on its own? No, I don't think it's necessary. Okay. Just just think of it as a mini virtual computer, mini OS all on its own. And the computer that runs this virtual computer has, it's almost like a sandbox where it's very guarded between the interfaces that are allowed to communicate between these two. And your virtual machine cannot affect your host machine by design. And so if if you have suspect software that you need to test out, it's good to put it into a virtual machine first. And it's not very expensive to purchase a virtual machine software. There's many different vendors out there. Cool. I don't know where you're going now. Go ahead. 
I just wanted to say that with virtual machines, malware authors are actually very scared about virtual machines because it is the perfect environment for someone to reverse engineer the malware. And so you'll see malware packages like Trojans and whatnot not deploy their payload when they detect that they're in a virtual machine. I mean, there's telltale signs that they're in a virtual machine, like the the vendor's type of software driver for the graphics or whatnot, right? Because it's got to be a mini OS and it's got to be controlled. So the malware will say, oh, I'm in a virtual machine. I'm not actually going to release my payload. I'm just going to keep everything quiet and just pretend like I failed. Huh. Again with the cat and mice. Yeah. And then if you want to get really crazy sauce, then you start looking at things like... uh physical security and how to protect your home and office and enterprise from someone breaking in and stealing your stuff through the things we'd mentioned before, like encryption and whatnot. And that's going to do it. That was a really packed episode. And like I said, it's just touching the surface, right? So these are a bunch of different considerations that people should do when they talk about hardening their computers. If you're a business it's very much worth the time to do this really well once and then repeat it against all of your machines. There's still potentially even just this simple gain that you can get from doing this on your home system in that you'll find a speed increase or a performance increase. Oh, definitely. All of these other things that aren't running. Um, You'll have like, for instance, one of the fastest things that I shut off was through my BIOS on my system. I had it automatically always tries to boot off of a network drive and I've got a network set up. I've got network drives that I could technically boot off of. I don't want that to ever happen. I don't want anyone else to be able to have it boot off of a network drive. So I turn that off and that alone when it's going through the boot up process cuts virtually seconds off of the time. And now that I've got an SSD in my machine, it boots up so quickly already that now it's really noticeable when it's just trying to look for a network drive. Right. Even things like that, it's very noticeable. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, and when I had mentioned patching before, I didn't want it to just sound like I was talking about operating systems that need to get patched. I mean, it is operating systems, but all of the home routers and whatnot they have firmware as well that needs to get updated and patched right to solve the backdoor problems that were found recently in all of these home based routers and whatnot so it's important to keep on top of patching the devices that you might not think of patching the firmware for embedded operating systems within your router your fridge your thermostat or whatnot your printer exactly on that note i think that we've got so much in this episode it's a really full episode and it's very very in-depth and really interesting and i do think that we should and will revisit a lot of these topics a little bit more in depth but for today i think that we should uh we should give it a all right i'm spent anyways awesome well thanks a lot for this great episode uh as always you have yourself a great week Thanks, Matt. You too.